0: where my handle is at turkey hitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. I am your host, and the only person I know that has a valid medical reason for speeding because I have a 177 caliber pellet lodged between my big toe and the little piggy that stayed home. And I have a doctor's excuse for having a lead foot. You are listening to episode 42, Managing Habitat for Wild Turkeys with Bob Erickson. And today we are 243 days, 12 hours, 19 minutes, and 4 seconds away from opening day of turkey season in Alabama. I have a great show lined up for you today with Bob Erickson, who's a biologist with NWTF. And Bob was actually on episode 20 about this time last year, where we talked about the breeding cycle of hens. So I'm glad to have Bob back on, I'm glad to get some science on the show, and we're gonna talk about managing habitat so that we can have more turkeys on our hunting property, which is always a goal. The more turkeys we have, the more opportunities we have to take turkeys off of the property, and that's what we need. I've always said that you could take a hunter like Cuz Strickland, Preston Pittman any of those guys stick them in Manhattan tell them that they can't move outside of a mile from where you drop them off leave them there for turkey season and they will never kill a turkey you can't kill turkeys where there are no turkeys so we've got to have them before we get into the show I want to thank Brent Rogers and Josh Adkins both of these guys sent me emails this week And Brent sent me an email with a bunch of ideas for show topics. And some of those show topic ideas that he sent me, I did not have on the radar screen. But guess what? I do now. And we'll be covering some of Brent's topic ideas in upcoming weeks. Brent, thank you for that. I greatly appreciate it. And I got an awesome email from Josh Adkins, who emailed me to say thank you for doing the podcast. And he also told the story of killing his first turkey this season and said that he would not have been able to do that had it not been for information he learned here on the show. And he actually picked up that info on the episode about turkey decoys with Jimmy Primos. And so Josh, thank you for sending me that awesome email and the pictures to go along with it. Man, that makes me feel good. I'm glad you guys have had some success and picked up some tips from things you've learned on this show That's why I have these guys on the show is for them to share their experiences in the turkey woods and to make all of us better hunters, not just you guys, but to make me a better hunter as well. So Josh, congrats on the turkey. Thanks again for the email. I was pumped up to read that and I am glad that you had some success this past season. And if you guys have any ideas for show topics or you've got a success story that you want to share or you just want to shoot me a note, and say hello, you can do that. My email address is andy at I, I would love to hear from you. Hey, let's get into this week's interview with Bob. We've got a lot of great information to cover and I don't want to run the show too long, but as I mentioned, Bob has been on the show before. He has been a biologist with the NWTF for quite some time and he is actively involved in a lot of habitat management projects going on around New Jersey and Pennsylvania and he is extremely knowledgeable about things that we can do to improve the nesting habitat, the brood rearing habitat, and things that we can do to keep more turkeys on our property and for us to grow more turkeys on our property. So we're going to jump right into this week's interview. I hope that you enjoy it and I look forward to seeing you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am glad to have on the line with me today Bob Erickson biologist for the NWTF, and Bob actually been on the show with us before. On episode 20, the breeding cycle of hens. But I've got Bob on the line with us today because I wanted to talk to him about what habitat improvements we can make that will really benefit the wild turkeys that we have on our hunting property. So Bob, thank you for coming on the call with me today. How are you and where are you?
1: I'm, I'm doing well, Andy. Thank you. I am in my office in northwestern New Jersey right now. Uh, just back from a uh, road trip to Pennsylvania looking at some habitat projects that we have going.
0: Fantastic. Good deal. Are those projects on state land or national land?
1: Uh, primarily, we, uh, we do projects on public lands, Andy, and this year we, we had about 85 projects that we participated in, most of which were on state game lands, which are operated by the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And the second largest uh, bunch of, of habitat projects was on state forest land. But we also have some projects on a couple of national wildlife refuges and the, the Allegheny National Forest. So we have a lot going on in Pennsylvania. Our chapters are doing a good job raising money, and we're putting that money back into the ground on, on conservation projects.
0: That's awesome. A large part of the money that goes towards those projects comes from the state chapter, which comes through that's, the local chapters that's as correct. well, doesn't it? That's
1: correct. Yeah. Our, our banquet system, our, our volunteers are the backbone of, of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Those folks work hard to raise the dollars. And the real advantage that we have uh, working with the Pennsylvania Game Commission is the money we invest in habitat projects on land that they operate and own, they can use our contribution as a non-federal match for Pittman-Robertson money so in effect they can triple the money. Uh, for instance this year we invested $120,000 on state game lands and the game commission will acquire $360,000 in federal funds to do habitat work using that money as a
0: wow. match. Yeah, that can go a long way, can it? It sure can. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, if you're just making habitat improvements to a piece of property, it's a whole lot cheaper than it is to go out and buy more property. So that money's going a long way compared to going out and acres to make available for public hunting so we can improve the public hunting land that we have and do that very inexpensively and make those dollars go a long way. So that's awesome. Yeah, we
1: sure can. And, and the, the great thing about it is that the land that we improve ac- the, the habitat on will produce more wildlife and, and produce a good future for our hunting
0: public. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of that in just a minute, just like I said, but what are, just to pick a couple of the projects that are going on right now in Pennsylvania that, are, that NWTF money is going towards, and just name off some of the things that you guys are doing there. Okay.
1: Um, One of the things that we're involved in is treating invasive plant species. Uh, Some of the plants that we as wildlifers thought might be a good idea to plant have proved to to be, while while they have some advantages, have proved to be invasive. Things like Japanese barberry and Autumn Olive uh, that were once planted by wildlife agencies have kind of taken off on their own and become a problem. So we're doing some treatment of invasive plant species. We're preparing lands for prescribed fire by planting roads and and edges, burn breaks, and things like that. We're also uh, improving herbaceous openings throughout the forest. Uh, Those openings need to be uh, retouched every couple of years just to add lime and fertilizer to make sure that the herbaceous materials that uh, we've planted there, usually a clover mix or something like that, is maintained. And then every few years, seven or eight years, uh, the agency will have to go back in there and plow and plant again.
0: Yeah, that's great. Those are all things that will certainly benefit turkeys over a period of time as well as a lot of other wildlife species, so that's fantastic.
1: That's for sure, and it's great when we get a letter occasionally from a deer hunter or somebody else who has has benefited from one of those wildlife openings and said, wow, I had a great hunt this year, and it may not be a turkey hunt, but other critters benefit as well, just like you said.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that... A few years ago, some quail hunters were blaming some of the population decline of the quail on turkeys, but it's really working quite the opposite because the improvements that NWTF are making on public lands for wild turkeys or with wild turkeys in mind are actually benefiting quail and the other upland bird species as well so that's good stuff.
1: Absolutely and and good quail habitat is good turkey habitat and the two species uh, inhabited the same type of habitat for many years but uh, some of our our land management techniques have reduced the quality of the habitat for bobwhites. Uh, Turkeys are a more generalist species so they can thrive in places where bobwhites used to be but the habitat is no longer suitable Um, so one of our our main concerns in the future is to be is to be involved in some projects that benefit Bob Whites and bring that iconic species back from, from the low level where they currently are.
0: Yeah, good deal. Well, you know, I've started doing a new segment on the show since I've had you on here last, and it's kind of a rapid-fire question-and-answer session, and it's just a way for people to get to know you a little bit better in a very quick question-and-answer type of format. And if you are willing to play along with that, we'll play along with that and... Now, I'll tell you that the record holder for that right now is J.T. Byrne, (laughs) and he answered all 30 questions in 3 minutes and 28 seconds. And prior to J.T., it was Brenda Valentine, and Brenda had 3 minutes and 42 seconds. So I'll, I'll tell you the kind of the best way to go through this is to... Not worry too much about giving the 100% accurate answer. So if I ask you for a number and you can't remember if it's 8 or 10, just go with either one of those numbers and, and we'll all be happy with it. But it's just a kind of a way, like I said, for people to get to know you pretty quickly and have a little bit of fun along the way. And pass is an acceptable answer. Okay. All right. But if you pass on all 30, I might call you out on that well, one. probably set the record for time. <laughs> I think it would. <laughs> All right. so as soon as I start the first question, I'll start the clock and then we'll roll through all 30 of those. How many full-body turkey mounts do you own? One. How many turkeys did you kill last year? Two. Diaphragm, box, pot and peg, or wing bone? Diaphragm. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried? Fried. Wild turkey, on the rocks, neat, with cola, or with water? Cola. Number of Grand Slams? Uh, One. The make of your shotgun? Remington. Your favorite turkey shotgun shell?
1: Winchester, three-inch mag, ounce and three-quarter load. Number five.
0: (laughs) There we go. Have you ever killed a bearded hen? I have not. Have you ever killed a Jake? Yes. Would you prefer a 10-minute successful hunt on a two-year-old bird or a four-hour-long hunt with a clean miss on a four-year-old bird?
1: I like the four-hour hunt challenge.
0: There you go. Favorite camo pattern? Um, Mossy Oak. Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog?
1: Dinner, soup, good stuff.
0: There you go. More or less than five strikers in your turkey vest? Five, (laughs) on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 30 mile an hour winds blowing at home the last day of turkey season. Are you hunting or are you sleeping in?
1: I'm hunting. If there's time to go, I'm going.
0: There you go. State you killed your last turkey in? New Jersey. State you killed your first turkey in? Pennsylvania. Sit in a blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger, or run and gun for one hour and not shoot? Run and gun. Rios or Osceolas? Rios. Rios or Easterns? Easterns. Easterns or Merriam's? Easterns. Public land out west or private land in the southeast? Mm-hmm.
1: Public land out
0: west. All right, you've answered this one already, but two and three quarter inch, three inch, or three and a half inch shells? Three inch. You've answered this one as well. Four or five, six, or blended shot. I like five. Field turkeys or woods turkeys? Woods turkeys. Pump or automatic? Automatic. Shotgun scope, rifle. Uh, excuse me. Shotgun scope, rifle sights, holographic sights, or beads? Beads. Rubber boots, leather boots, or snake boots?
1: Rubber boots, most of the time.
0: You roost a bird this afternoon, and it's pouring rain at daylight in the morning. Do you hunt? Yes. Favorite place you've ever hunted? Pennsylvania. Three minutes and 12 seconds. (laughs) There you go. Good job. Yeah, I might go back and move some of those questions around because what I'm finding is that when I get to the make of the shotgun and your favorite turkey shell yeah. people are saying the brand of the shell and if it's a three inch three and a half mm-hmm. or four or five or six shots so I may move those questions up but three twists you beat him by 16 seconds so this keeps getting lower and lower you did good yeah, of course we could elaborate on some of them <laughs> and, and I I think that's what got Brenda <laughs> She, she said, now, you know, I'm from the South. I don't talk very fast. I said, well, I'm from the South. It's going to take me three minutes to read 30 questions. So <laughs> you're not going to stand much of a chance of getting through this very fast. But yeah, it's fun. It's a good way for people to kind of get to know you and, you know, some of these questions that we would never get to about you in an interview. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. But let's get on with the meat of the show here. We're going to talk more about habitat improvements that we as land owners and less ease of property can make to our hunting property to improve our turkey numbers. And, you know, I've read a few articles about this, about people's opinions on this, but I'd like to get your opinion. What do you think the perfect piece of property that is managed for wild turkeys looks like? What does that habitat look like as far as the percent of mature forest compared to open field or open area? And compared to early successional habitat, what does that percentage of all that look like in your mind?
1: Well, if I had to to put it in line of a perfect spot, I would say about 60% mature forest and that would be about 40% of openings, but those openings would be in different ages. They would be well dispersed throughout the forest, and some of them would be openings that were growing back up into forest or young forest, early successional habitat that would provide nesting habitat as well as uh, places for for the birds to escape to if they're disturbed. There would also be some herbaceous openings and places where, where broods would be comfortable. Because yeah. nesting habitat and brood habitat is really the bottom line when it comes to turkey turkey numbers.
0: Yeah, if the nesting success is not good and the brood rearing success is not good, the rest of it is just gonna be downhill from there, isn't it? That's right, and,
1: and looking over the country, The shortages in in turkey habitat, for the most part, are those uh, nesting
0: and quality
1: brood-rearing habitats. In some areas of the country, especially further north, and you also have to be concerned about winter habitat as well. But if you can produce a large number of young and get them through the summer and into the fall, even a tough winter is not going to challenge all of them.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there certain things that we can do to help those young turkeys and even the older ones get through a tough winter?
1: Well, there are. If, if you live in an area where there are tough winters, providing a permanent, reliable source of winter food is the key. And that can range from a, a permanent source of winter food, uh, for instance, fruit trees that hang on to their fruit late, um, even wild grapes, to a, an annual type of food like corn. Standing corn is, uh, is an absolute uh, essential in in areas that get heavy snowfall that's that corn will stand up to the snow the deer will cut trails to it turkeys will follow the trails and everybody can can uh, utilize the corn also encouraging mass producing trees uh, so that there are some acorns on the ground in a good year when before the snow flies and then after the snow begins to break up
0: that's good to know I don't have to worry about that a whole lot here in Alabama <laughs> we consider a, a harsh winter to be you know about four or five days in a row below freezing so Yes.
1: This past winter was an extremely harsh one in the north. And uh, even though it was so tough, uh, it looks like in many places, turkeys made it through okay. If the snow develops a crust on it and they can can get some mobility, they can go and find a food source, and they may have to travel some to find it. When they have deep powdery snow, as was the case in some places in the northeast this uh, this past winter, uh, that's a little tougher on them because they just can't travel.
0: Yeah. I read recently in an article that I believe it was Delaware had their second highest harvest this past spring. With the highest harvest being the year before that. So yeah, you know, and of course those are mature birds, but it does take a toll on mature birds as well, doesn't it? A harsh winter? A uh,
1: harsh winter can, but uh, a lot of that would be based on predation because the birds are having to travel more.
0: The the first birds that uh, that really
1: suffer in the case of, a, of an extremely harsh winter, if indeed starvation does occur, which it's very rare, by the way, um, hope would be young hens and then young toms, uh, jakes, because they don't have the fat reserves that the adult birds do. The secondary problem associated with, with a harsh winter is that mature hens won't have the reserves to try a second nest if they lose their first one.
0: Okay. And that's probably even more important than, uh, than
1: whatever actual mortality takes place during the winter.
0: Yeah. Now, is that because they just don't have the strength or the reserves of fat and all that built up from... That's right. To, if to... if
1: uh, you have extreme cold, like I uh, was experienced in the Northeast this past winter, uh, the month of February, um, I believe 80% of the hours in February were below freezing. Wow. And when that happens, you know, the birds, kind of, their metabolism slows down, they can keep themselves warm, but they're still burning energy. And if, if their food sources are you know, less than ideal, um, that, that caloric reduction, you know, they're, they're burning calories that they're not intaking, you know, so their fat reserves will be, uh, will be reduced, and, and that can have an impact on their ability to second nest. Okay. I think most of the adult birds came through the winter in most places in the north um, this past winter in good shape, but maybe not in good enough shape to nest twice.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's pretty interesting. I never really thought about that, but it makes good sense. Well, are there things that an owner of a smaller track, say 20 to 100 acres, can do to improve the property for turkeys? Should we really kind of concentrate more on improving food sources, knowing that we're not holding turkeys on our property with great, necessarily holding them with great nesting habitat or roosting? places or things like that. But what what are some things that we can do on those smaller tracks to keep turkeys around?
1: Well, there are some things you can do. And One of the most important things to do before you even set out to do some more is to look around at adjacent properties and see what's available on those adjacent properties. For instance, if, um, if your next-door neighbor has an extensive uh, field of clover, you're putting a small clover plot in 150 yards from where there's a large field with a lot of edge. It's probably not going to really be that productive. However, if if um, all of your neighbors are forested and you have two small openings that uh, maybe total an acre and a half or three acres, something like that, uh, those clover plots could become very exp- very uh, important. So, what I would recommend is uh, think about when you want the turkeys there, think about what you want to accomplish. Annual food sources um, in the summertime, things like buckwheat can be very attractive to, to wild turkeys and they produce seed early. And uh, you can plant a second crop uh, on that same land. You can go with either winter wheat in August or September, or you can, if you're thinking about deer hunting, uh, put some brassica in there. And the turkeys will still frequent those small openings because they're used to going there. Mm -hmm. The small openings could also be planted with with clover or other perennials that, that would provide brood habitat. So think about what might be lacking on your neighbor's property, what you think is lacking on your own property, and when you want the birds to be there. One of the pieces of property that, uh, that I manage, it belongs to a friend of mine, we like to plant corn on it because the corn will hold bird there through the winter. If there's, there's no other um, agricultural land around there, and that corn will be attractive to them and will keep them there. And by, by the time April rolls around when we're getting ready to spring gobbler hunt, they're still there and they're still available to us right but just assess your property and what is it, what's available on adjacent properties and you can you can um, think about what what would most benefit the birds and that type brooding habitat's real important so think about brooding habitat and think about the winter winter habitat
0: okay now for those of us who do own a small piece of property that we do want to manage would you recommend we bring in a biologist from the Forestry Service or someone like that to put together a management plan for us?
1: I certainly would. Many state wildlife agencies uh, offer private land planning opportunities. Some don't, and in that case, you'd probably have to shop around for a private consultant. Or um, there are opportunities through the Natural Resource Conservation Service. uh, If you qualify for some assistance, you can get a plan written on a cost-share basis, a plan called a uh, Conservation Action Plan, a CAP CAP, mm-hmm. 142, that's a fish and wildlife management land. Now, the landowner would have to pay for part of the plan, but uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service can also uh, help you with that, with the price of that plan. Some biologists will do the plan for what the Natural Resource Conservation Service w- will pay. Others might charge a little bit more, and a lot of that depends on the size of the property and the complexity of the plan. All
0: right. One of the things that I want to talk to you about is control burns or prescribed fire, as some people call them. And I'm sure that most everybody knows what those are, but can you explain that a little bit and tell us what the main benefits of those controlled burns are for wild turkeys?
1: A prescribed fire is, is a deliberately planned burn that is, that is planned to accomplish certain goals. And the fire is deliberately set, and the fire is, because it's planned and because there are, are people there to assist with the burn, there's very little chance of it getting out of control. And the goals that, that can be accomplished through prescribed fire uh, are many, and it depends on, on the, uh, the situation. One of the most important goals in many areas of the country is to assist with oak regeneration oaks are very fire tolerant. Some of their competitor trees that aren't really good for, as good for, for mass production are not fire tolerant. So by running a fire through a, a stand, a young stand, you can help to select for oaks uh, for that future stand and, and future acorn production. Uh, You can also utilize prescribed fire to increase the herbaceous material, the green things that grow on the ground in the forest, and that would provide plenty of food for insects, which in turn would provide food for turkey broods. And a side benefit of the burn would be to reduce the shrub layer. Uh, Some shrubs uh, make it very difficult for for turkeys to maneuver through the woods. They limit their sight abilities because they're right about the same height as a turkey's eyes. And so by reducing the shrub layer, uh, Uh, that, that's an important outcome of prescribed fire too. And then the, uh, the final reason, and some burns are done specifically for this reason, is to reduce the fuel load so that you can reduce the chances of a wildfire occurring. But uh, prescribed fire can be used both in a forest and in, uh, in fields. And many managers of warm-season grass stands want wildflowers to be mixed in with those stands, and they don't want the stands to get so thick that wild turkeys can't make their way through them. So burning every four years or so is a, a good method of keeping those stands from getting just too rank for wild turkeys. So prescribed fire can be used for a number of purposes. Um, it can be used on small acreages, but it's being increasingly used throughout the country as uh, wildlife managers are seeing the, the real benefits of it. We've protected our, our forests from fire for so long that we're seeing some really detrimental uh, aspects of, of that overprotection.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that's evident in some of the big fires that they're having and in, in, and seem to have every year in California and out west. Exactly, uh, Arizona and those areas. So, yeah. yeah, and we're
1: looking at we're looking throughout the eastern United States at a decline in oaks, um, and that decline is largely related to fire protection, also some uh, some invasive insect activity, gypsy moths and that kind of thing. But fire would help to uh, to brighten the future of oak stands in the eastern United mm-hmm. States, and of course oaks are. One of the mainstay mass producers for wild turkeys and other critters as well.
0: Yeah, but it's not something that you at least you don't recommend that we just, as individual landowners, go out there and have a bulldozer run around the edges and start a fire ourselves. It's something that really should be handled by a professional or at least someone with training, huh?
1: Yes, a good prescribed fire it requires a burn plan. It requires a burn boss, that personally responsible for the fire, and it requires that you have enough assistance on hand. To make sure that if the fire goes somewhere you don't want it to go, that you can get ahead of it real quick and and try to reduce any damage, potential damage that would be done. And you have to have the conditions right, and that then involves wind direction, it involves temperature, it involves humidity. Uh, It's a lot more complex than uh, just pull those in a line and set in a fire.
0: Right. You also have to think about, with the wind direction, where that smoke is going, because if you're having a fire and carrying that smoke over a highway or across a road, that's a huge liability. So Yes,
1: it is. There are liabilities associated with this prescribed fire, that, and that is precisely why a burn plan will help you to assure that, that bad things don't happen when you set that fire. And if they do, and you have a bird plan, burn plan and things don't go quite the way they were supposed to in the plan, at least you know, can show that you've got the plan and that you know, some, some factor affected it that was unanticipated.
0: Yeah. I actually had the Forestry Service come out and give me a quote for burning a little piece of property that I own that's north of Birmingham. And I was really quite surprised at how inexpensive it was just for what I was involved in making that happen. And I know if it's done right, there's really not that much to it. Once it starts is the prep going into making sure that you are going to do it right. But I was really surprised. It was you know, roughly in the neighborhood of about $17 an acre for the actual burn itself. You know, of course, cutting the fire lane with the bulldozer was added to that and having tractor time as well added to that during the burn. But I think for the benefit that we could get out of Doing a prescribed fire control burn versus the cost, it seems to be kind of a no-brainer to me.
1: It is. It's a, it's a very cost-effective har, uh, habitat management tool, and, and uh, I think we'll, we'll be seeing more and more of it being used. It's, it's certainly a lot more effective to do a prescribed fire on 1,100 acres than it would be to go in there and, and hand control unwanted vegetation or even, even use an herbicide. You know, you're, you're dealing with a lot higher cost. Mm-hmm. So, so, yes, it's, there's uh, there's economic reasons, and it's a system that really is built into the ecosystem. You know, the right. the ecosystem had, had fire as a component of it, and we have kind of squelched that. So putting fire back into it, at least on a limited basis, is going to produce some really good fruit for us.
0: Now, it seems to be lately that... Spring burns are gaining a lot of popularity, and that what I mean by spring burn, and I'm sure that's not the technical term for it, is that letting the trees and the plants leaf out and then having the control burn compared to a late winter burn where it's burned when the trees are still dormant and the plants are still dormant. But which burn do you think is better, and why do you feel that that's the case? Well, the growing season burns, aka spring
1: burns, are becoming a little bit more popular just because there are some advantages to running them. A spring burn usually burns a bit hotter than than a, a dormant season burn, and as a result, will have a little bit better outcome than, than a, a late winter burn. Uh, and the spring burn is very good at reducing the, the leaf layer, turning some of those nutrients back into the soil real quickly, and that results in a real quick green-up after the burn. And uh, the, the kind of flush of, of herbaceous material really creates some good turkey habitat. And winter burns won't won't affect nesting for ground-nesting birds like wild turkeys or towhees or other, other birds that nest on the ground, but uh, they are less effective at getting that good hot burn temperature that's needed to control things like red maple or whatever other trees you would like to uh, eliminate or reduce their productiveness in in a certain stand. So the only issue with control with the spring burn is that the conditions have to be exactly right. If it's too hot, mm-hmm. if it's too windy, it, you know, things, things just won't work, and, they, and the, the burn boss is going to call it off. Talk to a, a person who's really involved in doing a lot, of, a lot of burning, and his opinion is the best time to burn is when the conditions are right, and that would be late winter, spring, or, or even late summer, fall burns, though he prefers that growing season burn for, for the best results yeah but in order to get the acreage you want you can you know in a in a big place like a like a wildlife agency may plan in a given year to burn fifteen or sixteen thousand acres and they may find themselves because of rain or other issues uh, during the late winter and early spring not being able to reach that that goal so they have to shift to their late summer and fall burn plan mm-hmm. but uh, the bottom line is to get as many acres um, on the ground as possible, but managers are kind of leaning toward those growing season burns to uh, uh, to produce the desired effect, get that, that grassy, herbaceous understory under, under the trees, and, and provide some brood habitat, even in a place that doesn't look like typical brood habitat.
0: Are there downsides that come to mind to burning in late winter or that spring burn for wildlife?
1: Yeah, the amazing thing about it, when you, when you are on a burn site, to see the activity that takes place almost immediately after the burn takes place. Um, even a, a late winter burn, you're on the fire over, um, over these acres and, and as soon as that fire is out, you can start to see movement in what's left of the leaves. and the small mammals are starting to move around already. The, the advantage of, of burning a little bit later, at least on a turkey end, is that there's some insects out and some other things out there that turkeys will will eat after they've been uh, toasted, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak. And turkeys move into burned areas right away after they've been burned uh, to make use of some of that stuff. And then within a couple of weeks, you wouldn't recognize the site.
0: Yeah. I actually, one of the turkeys I killed this spring was killed in a fresh burn that where the stumps and fallen over trees were still smoldering.
1: <laughs> I've heard that tale told by a number of spring turkey hunters. And yeah. there's good reason for it. I've seen turkeys use burned areas very, very quickly after a fire, like you said, when it's still smoldering. You might think about changing your camo pattern if you're going to be hunting yeah.
0: in the burned area. You're right. That would be a good invention, burned forest <laughs> camo pattern. Yep. <laughs> well, in the south, it seems like on at least land that's managed by timber companies, when they'll come in and they do a timber harvest, and they replant pines, they come in anywhere from, seems like, 6 to 18 months after that, after they replanted pines, they come in and they spray herbicide over that area that's been cut where those new pines have been planted in order to kill off the sweet gums and Mm. the maples and the trees and the plants that they don't want and give those pines an opportunity to get a good head start And my observation is when they come in and they do that, it looks like a complete wasteland for a period of time. Everything's dead in it except for the pine trees that may be 12 to 18 inches tall. What effect, if any, do you think that that practice has on the quality of nesting habitat in those areas? Because those freshly cut areas that are grown up in briars and whatever kind of plants, even if it's sweet gums, that are waist-high seem to be a decent or really good nesting habitat for turkeys, and that's being killed off. Do you think that that's hurting the population of turkeys at all, or do you think it's just kind of delaying the time frame that it takes for that area to become a good Nesting habitat.
1: Well, I think it definitely delays things. It's a, it's a temporary impact on on availability of nesting habitat for sure, especially if it's a large large area that's that has been done in. One good thing about it is, if the competing hardwoods like sweet gum, for instance, and red maple are killed off, it may that may ultimately, after two or three years, uh, give an advantage to the, the blackberry brambles and other things that will provide real good nesting habitat. I understand why that the uh, methodology is used, and, but it, it does you know, give, have a, a negative impact for, for a year or two anyway on the availability of nesting habitat, but I think ultimately it may have a positive effect on the quality of the nesting habitat over time.
0: Okay. I was just curious about that because you know, we see it so often in an area. You just when drive you down the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. You drive down, and you hate to see, at least being a hunter and an outdoors person, you hate seeing anything get cut, even though it's okay. We know it's gonna grow back. Yeah, you know, that that there's no long term harm caused and actually, you know, I think that the deer hunting improves right away and the turkey hunting actually in that area seems to get better as well for a year or two until it does grow up and you, you can't walk through it or can't see in it and you know that turkeys are not traveling in it. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, you see it just like you said, just when it starts to get good. All of a sudden, everything's dead, and you can see eye level. You can see from one end of the cutover to the other end of the cutover, and everything's dead. And so I, I just wondered if that was just, you know, having a delay on things on the quality of that nesting habitat, or if it did any kind of—I hate to use the word permanent—but that was more of a longer-term detriment to that area. So yeah, I, I think it's delaying it. Yeah, I
1: don't think it's—I don't think it's permanent from the pure turkey hunting or turkey management standpoint, you would you'd like to see it just be a continuum of, of good habitat. Uh, however, when you think about how quickly those sweet gums, red maples, and, and other trees will grow and cast shade, you know, within six or seven years, that stand they would be less viable as nesting, as nesting habitat if it weren't sprayed anyway. So, mm. and And, of course, they'd outcompete the pines, which is not what the timber company wants. <laughs>
0: Right, uh, yeah.
1: So it's you know, it's a temporary setback to, to turkey nesting habitat, but in, in the long term, it may, you know, may produce turkey nesting habitat that lasts just a little bit longer. Okay,
0: well, that's very interesting. For those of us who do not own hunting land, but we lease hunting land, or maybe we're members of a hunting club that leases land from an owner, whether it's a timber company or just a private owner, what are some of the most cost-effective habitat management Strategies or tactics that we can do to improve that piece of property for turkeys?
1: When you're hunting on on leased land or or even land that you you don't have any degree of control over other than perhaps permission to hunt it, you're limited with what you can do. Uh, What I would do is take a look at that land and evaluate the current condition of the land and look it over for small openings that you might be able to improve with the landowner or timber company or whoever's uh, permission. But planting Log decks, skitter trails, and even forest roads uh, with clover mixes, uh, or even even oats or, or wheat can be very effective at, at attracting not only uh, wild turkeys to them, but but white-tailed deer as well. So think about those forest roads, those skitter trails and log decks um, as potential places to do a little bit of, uh, of habitat work. It's not going to take a, a ton of equipment. You're going to have to haul some lime in there if you can get back in there with a four-wheeler or pickup truck and haul lime and fertilizer in and, and even do it with a rototiller if it's you know, a quarter acre or so and uh, till it up and, and do some planting on it. With permission of the landowner, one of the uh, things you might think about doing, and, and this, this may or may not fly depending on the landowner is to, um, to remove some trees adjacent to the road to widen it out a little bit, daylight it, so that that forest road can be part of it can grow up a little bit into uh, blackberry brambles and that type of thing, provide some linear nesting habitat. Also take a look at power line or gas line right-of-ways uh, as a, a place where you might put a food plot in if any of those exist on the property. And even small openings can, can do a great deal. Um, one piece of property that I manage has two small openings. Neither of them are much more than a quarter of an acre, but there's nothing else around there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, by planting those two little quarter-acre plots, and they're relatively close together, and put a trail camera up on it. It's just amazing how much use they're getting. Yeah. So so don't you know, don't just think oh, that's too small. It's not going to be worth it. You know, eighth acre, quarter acre, half acre can make a big difference if you're dealing with an uninterrupted forest for the most part.
0: Right. Yeah. So those those daylighted roads, roads, we could even leave yeah. yeah leave some of those in blackberry brambles. Let them grow up a little bit, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the rest of them we could plant. Yep. The sides. Right. So. Yep. Okay. All right. What do you think would be the best way to approach a landowner about Possibly doing a burn in a certain area on that property. Just say, other than the financial, the cost of it of the club, saying, "Hey, we'll pay for it, but mm-hmm. you know, can we do a burn in this area?" Do, what What do you think is the best way to approach something like that?
1: I think you you probably need to supply the, the landowner with some education educational materials uh, to let that person know that uh, that the proposal that you have for for a prescribed burn is designed to improve the future forest. That future forest is that landowner or the landowner's family, it's 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 one of their sources of income for the future. So Mm -hmm. you you need to sell the landowner on the benefits for the future forest, but also on the wildlife benefits that it makes it more attractive for for you folks uh, for hunting purposes and make it more attractive for that family or other people who have access to land for wildlife viewing opportunities.
0: Okay. That's good advice, I think. All right. Well, Bob, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to go through all of this and educate us a little bit on some habitat improvements. Do you have anything that you want to add to anything that we've talked about or you think that needs further explanation?
1: I think, I think we pretty much covered it, Andy. I, I would encourage folks who are uh, hunting a piece of property, whether they own it, lease it, or, or just have an agreement with the landowner to think about what they can do to improve that wildlife habitat. We're losing habitat across the country to residential and industrial development at a rate that's just astounding, 6,000 acres a day. And what that means is that the open spaces, the land that we have left, it's going to be incumbent upon us to manage those acres more effectively if we want to continue to see the the types of wildlife populations that we're seeing today. And you know, we as hunters want to see as many critters out there as we possibly can have. And habitat
0: improvement is one way to accomplish that. Yeah. Well, fantastic. I, I agree with you. I think it's like I said, it's relatively inexpensive to do, making those improvements. And, heck, and even in some cases, it can make you some money if you're cutting timber.
1: That's right. Exactly.
0: So, you know, that's ways that we can, or some additional money that you can take mm-hmm. from one, one area and invest in another area to improve it and make the overall piece of property better. So, And,
1: and you mentioned earlier, uh, Andy, about the value of a, of a plan for the property. And I, I spoke about the availability of cost, cost share money from the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And uh, the cost share will be about $2,000 for a plan. So if a landowner can find a biologist that's willing to write a plan and, and settle for the for what the NRCS would pay for that plan, either the CAP 142 Fish and Wildlife Plan or a CAP 106 Forest Management Plan, um, that landowner here or she would have, would have a plan on which to base future decisions on, on the course of action they're going to take on their property.
0: Yeah, and be able to get that for nothing if yeah. that yeah. If, manager if they can would find a, a, yeah. a vendor
1: who will who will do it for that price. Uh, and if not, hopefully the financial burden wouldn't be too much more than
0: that. Right. What is the process to go through to apply for those funds? Is it pretty detailed and drawn out?
1: It, it's a little bit. It's anything to do with federal government can be that way. <laughs> but, now, Bob, come on. We know that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> but um, it involves uh, taking a trip to the local natural resource conservation service office and advising them that you're interested in either a forest or a wildlife management plan for your property. They'll provide the landowner with a, an application form, and uh, that application form will also require um, information-adjusted road gross income, so that can make sure they're eligible. But you know, if you don't make more than 900000 a year, you're pretty much eligible. <laughs> Um, yeah. And um, then it would be subject to the availability of funds. But, but usually there are some funds within uh, the EQIP program, that's EQIP mm-hmm. program, an Environmental Quality Incentive Program, uh, to provide for these types of plans. Okay. So it does take a little bit of paperwork. It may require a waiting period because they may have a backlog. You, know, you might apply for the, for the plan in, in September and you may not get an answer until April or something like that, but yeah, it's worth the wait.
0: Yeah, is there a better time to apply? In other words, regarding the funds. So, in other words, are are the funds generally more available early in the year compared to later in the year with budgeting, or how do you know anything about that? Yeah,
1: that's that's a very good question. And uh, the um, one thing to remember is that the federal government fiscal year starts October one. Often they don't have a etched-in-stone budget for a month or two after that, but a good time to apply would be in September or early October.
0: Okay. And then
1: a lot of times there'll be
0: notifications
1: where deadlines set that'll be like in February or so, and you're already ahead of the game if
0: you've submitted an application that early. Okay. Those are great tips. I appreciate that. Well, again, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, and you told me some very exciting news when I called you earlier this week about your future.
1: Oh, yes. My plan is to retire at the end of July, and I've been in the wildlife business as a biologist uh, for a four, little over 42 years. Uh, it's something you just don't back out of and close the door on, and uh, right. I have to uh, do some part-time work for the NWTF on into the future. But um, at this stage in my life, and I'm 65 years old, and it's time to take a look around, manage my property a little bit more effectively than I can when I work full-time, and introduce my grandkids to more hunting and fishing opportunities.
0: Fantastic. Well, I know the NWTF is going to miss you, and I appreciate you coming on the show a couple of times that you've been on and sharing your knowledge with everybody here. And I wish you nothing but the best, and you are about to take on my dream job. Of retirement. So,
1: Well, Andy, I think that uh, I've had a dream career. Uh, I've had the type of career that wildlife students in the colleges all over the United States dream about, and it's probably a little time to make room for somebody else to have that type of career. So uh, I know some, the NWTF will hire a highly qualified individual to follow up behind me, but don't forget I'm, I'm always available to, to talk anytime, so feel free. Well,
0: I'll probably take you up on that again soon so i really appreciate you and wish you a lot of luck this summer on the lake if you happen to do that and definitely this winter in the deer hunting woods because i have a feeling you're going to be able to do a good bit more of that
1: that's my plan andy
0: good deal bob thank you so much again have a great afternoon and we'll talk again soon you're welcome andy take care all right goodbye all right i hope you guys enjoyed that Bob is a wealth of information, as I mentioned, and a great guy to boot. Bob, I wish you nothing but the best during your retirement, and hopefully I can get you down here to Alabama to hunt some turkeys now that you have some time to do that this coming spring. Okay, don't forget that if you want to go on a heck of a hunting trip out of state and you need a Merriam's turkey, you need to pick up a copy of my e-book, from my website, diymiriamsturkeyhunt.com, diymiriamsturkeyhunt.com, where I give you the A to Z on where to go hunt Merriam's turkeys on public land and have a heck of a good time doing it. And if you would, do me a favor. If you haven't already left a review for the show, go over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a review for the show. It helps other people to be able to find the show when they're searching, and it also helps with the rankings of the show with iTunes. Not only will leaving a review help out with that, but it might also help you get a Turkey Hunter Podcast t-shirt. I'll be drawing another name at the end of July for one lucky person who's left a review who will receive a Turkey Hunter Podcast t-shirt. So if you want to be the envy of all of your friends sporting your t-shirt... Then go on over to iTunes, go over to Stitcher Radio, leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will automatically be entered into the drawing. While you're at iTunes, take a second to subscribe. Subscribing does not cost a penny, and you'll be notified immediately when new episodes are posted so that you're sure not to miss a single episode. And that's all I've got for you this week. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. I know that you have choices, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I look forward to seeing you again next week, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies,